Section 11 of The Satyricon. This is a LibriVox recording. All the LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Miette. The Satyricon by Gaius Petronius Arbiter. Translated by W. C. Firebow. Volume 3. Further Adventures of Encolpius and His Companions. Chapter the Seventy-Ninth. There was no torch to light the way for us as we wandered around, nor did the silence of midnight give promise of our meeting any wayfarer with a light. In addition to this, we were drunk and unfamiliar with the district, which would confuse one even in daylight, so for the best part of a mortal hour we dragged our bleeding feet over all the flints and pieces of broken tile, till we were extricated at last by Giton's cleverness. This prudent youngster had been afraid of going astray on the day before, so he had taken care to mark all the pillars and columns with chalk. These marks stood out distinctly even through the pitchy night, and by their brilliant whiteness pointed out the way for us as we wandered about. Nevertheless, we had no less cause for being in a sweat, even when we came to our lodging, for the old woman herself had been sitting and swilling so long with her guests, that even if one had set her afire she would not have known it. We would have spent the night on the door-sill, had not Trimalchio's courier come up in state, with ten wagons. He hammered on the door for a short time, and then smashed it in, giving us an entrance through the same breach. Hastening to the sleeping-chamber, I went to bed with my brother, and burning with passion as I was, after such a magnificent dinner, I surrendered myself wholly to sexual gratification. O oh, goddesses and gods, that purple night, how soft the couch, and we embracing tight, with every wandering kiss our souls would meet. Farewell, all mortal woes, to die were sweet. But my self-congratulation was premature, for I was overcome with wine, and when my unsteady hands relaxed their hold, Ascyltos, that never-failing well-spring of iniquity, stole the boy away from me in the night and carried him to his own bed, where he wallowed around without restraint with a brother not his own, while the latter, not noticing the fraud or pretending not to notice it, went to sleep in a stranger's arms, in defiance of all human rights. Awaking at last, I felt the bed over, and found that it had been despoiled of its treasure. Then, by all that lovers hold dear, I swear I was on the verge of transfixing them both with my sword, and uniting their sleep with death. At last, however, I adopted a more rational plan. I spanked Giton into wakefulness, and, glaring at Ascyltos, "'Since you have broken faith by this outrage,' I gritted out with a savage frown, and severed our friendship, you had better get your things together at once, and pick up some other bottom for your abominations. 
He raised no objection to this, but after we had divided everything, with scrupulous exactitude. "'Come on now,' he demanded, "'and we'll divide the boy.' Chapter the Eightieth I thought this was a parting joke till he whipped out his sword with a murderous hand. "'You'll not have this prize you're brooding over all to yourself. Since I've been rejected, I'll have to cut off my share with this sword.' I followed suit on my side, and, wrapping a mantle around my left arm, I put myself on guard for the duel. The unhappy boy, rendered desperate by our unreasoning fury, hugged each of us tightly by the knee, and in tears he humbly begged that this wretched lodging-house should not witness a Theban duel, and that we would not pollute with mutual bloodshed the sacred rites of a friendship that was— as yet unstained. "'If a crime must be committed,' he wailed, "'here is my naked throat. Turn your swords this way and press home the points. I ought to be the one to die. I broke the sacred pledge of friendship.' We lowered our points at these entreaties. "'I'll settle this dispute,' Ascyltos spoke up. "'Let the boy follow whomsoever he himself wishes to follow.' In that way he at least will have perfect freedom in choosing a brother. Imagining that a relationship of such long standing had passed into a tie of blood, I was not at all uneasy, so I snatched at this proposition with precipitate eagerness, and submitted the dispute to the judge. He did not deliberate long enough to seem even to hesitate, for he got up and chose Ascyltos for a brother, as soon as the last syllable had passed my lips. At this decision I was thunderstruck, and threw myself upon the bed, unarmed and just as I stood. Had I not begrudged my enemy such a triumph, I would have laid violent hands upon myself. Flushed with success, Ascyltos marched out with his prize, and abandoned— in a strange town, a comrade in the depths of despair, one whom, but a little while before, he had loved most unselfishly, one whose destiny was so like his own. As long as is expedient, the name of friendship lives, just as in dicing fortune smiles or lowers, when good luck beckons, then your friend his gleeful service gives but basely flies when ruin o'er your towers. The strollers act their farces upon the stage, each one his part. The father, son, the rich man, all are here, but soon the page is turned upon the comic actor's art. The mask is dropped, the makeups disappear. Chapter the Eighty-First Nevertheless, I did not indulge myself very long in tears, being afraid that Menelaus the tutor might drop in upon me all alone in the lodging-house, and catch me in the midst of my troubles. So I collected my baggage, and with a heavy heart, sneaked off to an obscure quarter near the seashore. There I kept to my room for three days— my mind was continually haunted by my loneliness and desertion, and I beat my breast already sore from blows. 
Why could not the earth have opened and swallowed me? I wailed aloud between the many deep-drawn groans. Or the sea which rages even against the guiltless. Did I flee from justice, murder my ghost, and cheat the arena in order that after so many proofs of courage I might be left lying here, deserted, a beggar and an exile, in a lodging-house in a Greek town? And who condemned me to this desolation? A boy, stained by his every form of vice, who by his own confession ought to be exiled, free through vice, expert in vice, whose favours come through a throw of the dice, who hired himself out as a girl to those who knew him to be a boy. And as to the other, what about him? In place of the manly toga he donned the woman's stola when he reached the age of puberty. He resolved, even from his mother's womb, never to become a man. In the slave's prison he took the woman's part in the sexual act. He changed the instrument of his lechery when he double-crossed me, abandoning the ties of a long-standing friendship. And shame upon him sold everything for a single night's dalliance like any other street-walker. Now the lovers lie whole nights, locked in each other's arms, and I suppose they make a mockery of my desolation when they are resting up from the exhaustion caused by their mutual excesses. But not with impunity. If I don't avenge the wrong they have done to me in their guilty blood, I'm no free man. Chapter the Eighty-Second I girded on my sword when I had said these words, and fortifying my strength with a heavy meal, so that weakness would not cause me to lose the battle, I presently sallied forth into the public streets and rushed through all the arcades like a maniac. But while, with my face savagely convulsed in a frown, I was meditating nothing but bloodshed and slaughter, and was continually clapping my hand to the hilt of my sword, which I had consecrated to this. I was observed by a soldier, that is, he either was a real soldier, or else there was some night-prowling thug who challenged me. Halt! Who goes there? What legion are you from? Who's your centurion? Since when have men in your outfit gone on pass in white shoes, he retorted, when I had lied stoutly about both centurion and legion. Both my face and my confusion proved that I had been caught in a lie, so he ordered me to surrender my arms and to take care that I did not get into trouble. I was held up as a matter of course, and, my revenge balked, I returned to my lodging-house, and, recovering by degrees from my fright, I began to be grateful to the boldness of the footpad. It is not wise to place much reliance upon any scheme, because fortune has a method of her own. Chapter the Eighty-Third Nevertheless, I found it very difficult to stifle my longing for revenge, and after tossing half the night in anxiety I arose at dawn, and, in the hope of mitigating my mental sufferings and of forgetting my wrongs, I took a walk through all the public arcades, and entered a picture-gallery which contained a wonderful collection of pictures in various styles. I beheld works from the hand of Zeuxis, 
then undimmed by the passage of the years, and contemplated, not without a certain awe, the crude drawings of Protogenes, which equalled the reality of nature herself. But when I stood before the work of Apelles, the kind which the Greeks call monochromatic, verily I almost worshipped, for the outlines of the figures were drawn with such subtlety of touch, and were so lifelike in their precision, that you would have thought their very souls were depicted. Here an eagle was soaring into the sky, bearing the shepherd of Mount Ida to heaven. There the comely Hylas was struggling to escape from the embrace of the lascivious Naiad. Here too was Apollo, cursing his murderous hand and adorning his unstrung lyre with the flower just created. Standing among these lovers, which were only painted, "'It seems that even the gods are racked by love,' I cried aloud, as if I were in a wilderness. Jupiter could find none to his taste, even in his own heaven, so he had to sin on earth, but no one was betrayed by him. The nymph who ravished Hylas would have controlled her passion had she thought Hercules was coming to forbid it. Apollo recalled the spirit of a boy in the form of a flower, and all the lovers of fable enjoyed love's embraces without a rival, but I took as a comrade a friend more cruel than Lycurgus. But at that very instant, as I was telling my troubles to the winds, a white-haired old man entered the picture-gallery. His face was careworn, and he seemed, I know not why, to give promise of something great although he bestowed so little care upon his dress that it was easily apparent that he belonged to that class of literati which the wealthy hold in contempt. "'I am a poet,' he remarked when he had approached me and stood at my side, "'and one of no mean ability, I hope, that is, if anything is to be inferred from the crowns which gratitude can place even upon the heads of the unworthy.' "'Then why, you demand, are you dressed so shabbily? "'For that very reason, love or art never yet made any one rich. "'The trader trusts his fortune to the sea and takes his gains. "'The warrior for his deeds is girt with gold. "'The wily sycophant lies drunk on purple counterpanes.' Young wives must pay debauchees, or they're cold. But solitary, shivering in tatters, genius stands, invoking a neglected art for succour at its hands. Chapter the Eighty-Fourth It is certainly true that a man is hated when he declares himself an enemy to all vice, and begins to follow the right road in life because in the first place his habits are different from those of other people, for whoever approved of anything to which he took exceptions. Then they whose only ambition is to pile up riches don't want to believe that men can possess anything better than that which they have themselves. Therefore they use every means in their power to so buffet the lovers of literature that they will seem in their proper place below the money-bags. "'I know not why it should be so,' I said with a sigh. "'But poverty is the sister of genius.' 
"'You have good reason,' the old man replied, "'to deplore the status of men of letters.' "'No,' I answered. "'That was not the reason for my sigh. "'There is another and far weightier cause for my grief.' "'Then, in accordance with the human propensity "'of pouring one's personal troubles into another's ears, "'I explained my misfortune to him.' and dwelt particularly upon Ascyltos's perfidy. Oh, how I wish that this enemy who is the cause of my enforced continence could be mollified! I cried with many a groan, but he is an old hand at robbery, and more cunning than the pimps themselves. My frankness pleased the old man, who attempted to comfort me, and, to beguile my sorrow, he related the particulars of an amorous intrigue, in which he himself had played a part. CHAPTER THE EIGHTY-FIFTH When I was attached to the Castia's staff in Asia, I was quartered with a family at Pergamus. I found things very much to my liking there— not only on account of the refined comfort of my apartments, but also because of the extreme beauty of my host's son. For the latter reason, I had recourse to strategy, in order that the father should never suspect me of being a seducer. So hotly would I flare up whenever the abuse of handsome boys was even mentioned at the table— and with such uncompromising sternness would I protest against having my ears insulted by such filthy talk, that I came to be looked upon, especially by the mother, as one of the philosophers. I was conducting the lad to the gymnasium before very long, and superintending his conduct, taking especial care all the while that no one who could debauch him should ever enter the house. Then there came a holiday. The school was closed, and our festivities had rendered us too lazy to retire properly. So we lay down in the drawing-room. It was just about midnight, and I knew he was awake, so I murmured this vow in a very low voice. "'Oh, Lady Venus, could I but kiss this lad, and he not know it, I would give him a pair of turtle-doves to-morrow.' On hearing this, the prince offered for this favour. The boy commenced to snore. Then, bending over the pretending sleeper, I snatched a fleeting kiss or two. Satisfied with this beginning, I arose early in the morning, brought a fine pair of turtle-doves to the eager lad, and absolved myself from my vow. CHAPTER THE EIGHTY-SIXTH Next night, when the same opportunity presented itself, I changed my petition. If I can feel him all over with a wanton hand, I vowed, and he not know it, I will give him two of the gamest fighting cocks for his silence. The lad nestled closer to me of his own accord on hearing this offer, and I truly believe that he was afraid that I was asleep. I made short work of his apprehensions on that score, however, by stroking and fondling his whole body. I worked myself into a passionate fervour that was just short of supreme gratification. Then, when day dawned, 
I made him happy with what I had promised him. When the third knight gave me my chance, I bent close to the ear of the rascal who pretended to be asleep. "'Immortal gods,' I whispered, "'if I can take full and complete satisfaction of my love from this sleeping beauty, I will to-morrow present him with the best Macedonian pacer in the market, in return for this bliss provided that he does not know it.' Never had the lad slept so soundly. First I filled my hands with his snowy breasts, then I pressed a clinging kiss upon his mouth, but I finally focused all my energies upon one supreme delight. Early in the morning he sat up in bed awaiting my usual gift. It is much easier to buy doves and gamecocks than it is to buy a pacer, as you know, and aside from that I was afraid that so valuable a present might render my motive subject to suspicion. So after strolling around for some hours I returned to the house, and gave the lad nothing at all except a kiss. He looked all round, threw his arms about my neck. "'Tell me, master,' he cried, "'where's the pacer?' "'The difficulty of getting one.' "'Fine enough has compelled me to defer the fulfilment of my promise,' I replied. "'But I will make it good in a few days.' "'The lad easily understood the true meaning of my answer, "'and his countenance betrayed his secret resentment.' "'Chapter the Eighty-Seventh "'In the meantime, by breaking this vow, "'I had cut myself off from the avenue of access which I had contrived.' but I returned to the attack, all the same when the opportunity came. In a few days a similar occasion brought about the very same conditions as before, and the instant I heard his father snoring I began pleading with the lad to receive me again into his good graces. That is to say, that he ought to suffer me to satisfy myself with him, and he in turn could do whatever his own distended member desired. He was very angry, however, and would say nothing at all except, "'Either you go to sleep or I'll call father.' But no obstacle is so difficult that depravity cannot twist around it, and even while he threatened, "'I'll call father,' I slipped into his bed and took my pleasure in spite of his half-hearted resistance. Nor was he displeased with my improper conduct, for although he complained for a while that he had been cheated and made a laughing stock, and that his companions to whom he had bragged of his wealthy friend had made sport of him. But you'll see that I'll not be like you, he whispered. Do it again if you want to. All misunderstandings were forgotten, and I was readmitted into the lad's good graces. Then I slipped off to sleep after profiting by his complaisance. But the youth, in the very flower of maturity, and just at the best age for passive pleasure, was by no means satisfied with only one repetition. So he roused me out of a heavy sleep. "'Isn't there something you'd like to do?' he whispered. The pastime had not begun to cloy as yet, and— Somehow or other, what with panting and sweating and wriggling, he got what he wanted, and, 
worn out with pleasure, I dropped off to sleep again. Less than an hour had passed when he began to punch me with his hand. "'Why are we not busy?' he whispered. I flew into a violent rage at being disturbed so many times, and threatened him in his own words. "'Either you go to sleep, or I'll call your father.'" Chapter the Eighty-Eighth Heartened up by this story, I began to draw upon his more comprehensive knowledge as to the ages of the pictures, and as to certain of the stories connected with them, upon which I was not clear and I likewise inquired into the causes of the decadence of the present age, in which the most refined arts had perished, and among them painting, which had not left even the faintest trace of itself behind. "'Greed of money,' he replied, "'has brought about these unaccountable changes. In the good old times, when virtue was her own reward, the fine arts flourished.' and there was the keenest rivalry among men for fear that anything which could be of benefit to future generations should remain long undiscovered. Then it was that Democritus expressed the juices of all plants, and spent his whole life in experiments, in order that no curative property should lurk unknown in stone or shrub that he might understand the movements of heaven and the stars, Euxodus grew old upon the summit of a lofty mountain. Three times did Chrysippus purge his brain with hellebore, that his faculties might be equal to invention. Turn to the sculptors, if you wish. Lysippus perished from hunger while in profound meditation upon the lines of a single statue, and Myron, who almost embodied the souls of men and beasts in bronze, could not find an heir. And we, sodden with wine and women, cannot even appreciate the arts already practised. We only criticise the past. We learn only vice, and teach it too. What has become of logic? of astronomy. Where is the exquisite road to wisdom? Who even goes into a temple to make a vow that he may achieve eloquence or bathe in the fountain of wisdom? And they do not pray for good health and a sound mind. Before they even set foot upon the threshold of the temple, one promises a gift if only he may bury a rich relative. Another, if he can but dig up a treasure, and still another if he is permitted to amass thirty millions of sesterces in safety. The Senate itself, the exponent of all that should be right and just, is in the habit of promising a thousand pounds of gold to the capital, and that no one may question the propriety of praying for money, it even decorates Jupiter himself with spoils. Do not hesitate, therefore, at expressing your surprise at the deterioration of painting. Since, by all the gods and men alike, a lump of gold is held to be more beautiful than anything ever created by these crazy little Greek fellows, Apelles and Phidias. End of section 11 Recording by Miette